Well, uh, with that, let, we're going to dive back into God's Word now. Thank you for letting me do that. That's just been uh, on my heart all week as I knew 4th of July. How often does Sunday land on 4th of July? There's probably some of you know exactly. I don't. <laughs> but it does happen occasionally. This is one such occasion. And I uh, felt like it was appropriate, uh, given all that's going on in our country today, to just take a little time and think about what it means to be a Christian citizen these days. Uh, I did want to spend a little bit of time, though, continuing our study through the, the book of Ruth. We started off last week. Uh, some of you weren't able to be here with us, but we were on the road last week from Moab to Bethlehem with a woman who was formerly known as Naomi, but who now has decided to change her name to Mara. Naomi meant pleasant or sweet, but she doesn't feel that way, so she's changed her name to Mara, which means bitter. If you had said, hey, Naomi, she would have said, oh, don't call me that. You know what you should call me? Bitter, because <laughs> that's who I am. She's had a rough go of it. She and her husband had moved away from Bethlehem 10 years before. Her husband was named Elimelech. They had two sons, Chilion and Malin. And over the course of those 10 years, they all died. She says, I left full and I'm returning empty. God has dealt bitterly with me. That's what she said when she finally made it home to Bethlehem. And this, begin, this is the beginning of our story. And last week we met a couple of other characters too. Naomi has two daughters-in-law. One is named Orpah, and the other, who is of course more famous and well-known to us, is Ruth. She's the namesake of the book of Ruth, which we're studying, of course. And I wanted to, uh, we kind of glossed over this portion of the story last week. I told you we'd be coming back to it. And so here in just the last few moments that we have together, I want to just give some thought to these words that Ruth speaks to Naomi on the side of the road as they're going home to Bethlehem. Beginning at verse 8 in chapter 1. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. And then comes the most famous words in all the book of Ruth. I'm willing to bet you've heard this at weddings and other times. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. 
Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Now there's a couple different things in this portion of the account that are worthy of our attention. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the the two decisions of Ruth and Orpah. Let's compare and contrast them. But first, what's interesting to me is comparing Ruth's decision to go to Bethlehem with Naomi and Elimelech's initial decision to go to Moab. Uh, This is an area of of wonder. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, But I thought of three different ways that they were different. One in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says that when we're given like a a little bit of a a historical context for this story, it says it's in the time of Judges, which we know from our, if you're a Bible student and have been in church for a long time, the period of Judges is like the Wild West period of Israel's history. There's no law. (laughs) There's no king. Everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes. It's a very dark time. And so it's a lawless time. It's also a time where we see this cycle play out again and again and again and again, where the people fall into sin and idolatry. God visits them with judgment that then brings them back to God. They're delivered out of their difficulties, and then they go right around again, over and over and over again. The book of Judges is this horrible cycle of sin, deliverance. Uh, they're, They're... prospering, and then they topple off into sin again, and we just go round and round again. It's dizzying. So when this says, this is in the time of Judges, and there's a famine in the land, I think we're clear in understanding that this is a famine of judgment, especially because later on, when Ruth, it says of Naomi that she heard that God had visited her people, and they now had abundance. So we have seen this cycle is playing out in Ruth. And so one of the things that Um, Naomi and Elimelech did, it says in verse 1 that they went to sojourn in the country of Moab. What does sojourn mean? It means they're just going to go kind of check it out. (laughs) They're just going to go see what the scene is like over there. We're just going to kind of pass through, dabble a little bit. But then in verse 2 it says, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. So they're like, we'll just go sojourn. But then they end up remaining And this is really very much like the entry point into so many sins. And this is sin. If we understand God's commands to his people, that they were not, this is their land of promise, and they were not to go and become Moabites. They were supposed to stay there in the land of promise and be true to God there, but they are being disobedient in sojourning and remaining in Moab. But when we compare and contrast that with Ruth's decision to go to Judah, she does not say to Naomi, I'll check it out. I'll go with you and see what happens, does she? There's no, like, uh, experimentation. She is just like a grimly determined person. She is all in from the start. She says, I don't know what's going to happen over there, but where you go, I'm going. Where you end up staying, I'll sleep there too. Your God will be my God, your people, my people. I don't know what those people are going to be like. 
I'm going to go, and, and you know, where you die, I'll die. I'm not coming back. I'm not going to go check it out. Two very different spirits involved there. The other is the relationship to difficulty, the attitude towards difficulty. What was the uh, dominant reason, probably, for Naomi and Elimelech to go sojourn and then later remain in Moab? It's because things are difficult back there. <laughs> I don't want to, they're avoiding difficulty. But something that Ruth demonstrates here in her statement is a willing embrace of difficulty. Everything that is maybe normal and comfortable is back at her mom's house. But she is demonstrating here a shockingly brave, some might even say foolish, willingness to embrace great unknowns and difficulty. So whereas Naomi, in going to Moab, was avoiding difficult things, Ruth, in her grim determination to go with Naomi back to Judah, is embracing them. And then the third difference that I see here is that Naomi fled God's will in a self-serving, disobedient move only to find bitterness at the end of it. But Ruth would embrace a path of self-sacrificing obedience that ends in reward and joy. We're going to see that as we go through this story. And so, one, the move to Moab is very much descriptive, I think, of many of our sojourning patterns into wayward disobedience and sin. We do it to, in the pursuit of joy, but we only find bitterness. We do it out of self-serving disobedience to avoid difficulty, and we don't find what we're looking for. But then Ruth, I think, models for us what it is to become a Christian and to follow God. There is an all-in aspect to it. There is a, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. You know that song? That's the, that's the kind of resolve we see in what Ruth is saying. I've decided no turning back. I'm not sojourning, and if it works out, I'll remain. I'm not going to dabble and see what this Jesus thing is all about. I'm all in. That's justification. And so I want us to see that here. There really is two pictures here that are juxtaposed for our benefit. Now let's talk about Ruth and Orpah. This is where I want to spend our time, really. Both of these women felt a strong affection for their mother-in-law. And they both started out walking the road with her, but then Naomi, I, believe, I, think, I think like all people, Naomi's motives in this are probably mixed. Uh, I really do. I think probably the dominant emotion in her heart is this deep, deeply held belief that she's cursed by God, that God has been dealing bitterly with her. And so she looks at these two young women who are tagging along with her, and she says, I cannot in good conscience allow them to follow me into this life of abject poverty, judgment, wrath, bitterness. It's not good. I should send them home. It's not right. It's not fair to them. I think that that's the reason she gives. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. I think that's probably the dominant feeling. But I think also that given her prospects, these women might have been a liability to her. She is going home to do what? 
to throw herself on the tender mercies of her extended family. She is going home to say, I need help. And she's bringing along two adult females in the same position. It's going to make it harder to show up at Uncle Bobby Bag of Donuts' house and say, take me in, please. And can you take in Ruth and Orpah as well? She doesn't give that reason. That reason's not listed in the Bible. But put yourself in her shoes. Wouldn't you be thinking the same thing? When I get home to Bethlehem, who's going to provide for me and two other adults? It's a harder deal. So I think she's probably thinking most prominently in her mind, I love you ladies and this is not what you want. But I think also she's thinking, it's going to be harder for me to find a place to stay and food if I have to negotiate for you as well as for me. You should go home. We'll all do better if we're just left to our own devices. But she takes a motherly interest in them. She doesn't want them to follow in her life of hardship, poverty, danger. So at some point along the road, she stopped, confronts them with the weight of the decision they were making. And I believe Naomi loved these women. As she says to them, they had been kind to her sons. They'd been good wives. She has a motherly interest in them. She's established a bond with them. They're friends. This is a good relationship. And so she wants to be very honest with them. And you know, Jesus took a very similar approach when people would want, say they wanted to follow him. In Luke 9, for example, he told one would-be disciple, you know, foxes have holes in the ground, but I'm homeless. <laughs> you should really think twice about coming and following me because you're going to be homeless too. And one said, you know what, I'll come follow you. Just let me go bury my parents first. I'm kind of waiting for them to die, and then I'll be more free to follow you. And he says, let the dead bury the dead. Wow. Harsh language, almost. And then in Luke 14, 33, he says, Therefore, if any one of you does not give up all that he has, he cannot be my disciple which I think is more or less a rewording of the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. So really, Jesus stops along the road and turns to his disciples and says, you should really give some thought to what you're entering into. I'm homeless. <laughs> uh, there's going to be some suffering involved in following me. I tell all my followers to take up their cross and you can't have anything else beside me. You're going to have to walk away from Moab in a permanent kind of way. And a lot of people, like Orpah, at that point they kind of go, you know, yeah, I'm going to go back. L hear me out on this. Orpah's parting kiss to Naomi demonstrates the truth of her heart. Orpah loved Naomi. She liked her. She wished her well. She enjoyed her company, I believe. I think Orpah loves Naomi. And I think she felt conflicted about leaving her. But when faced with the stark realities of sharing in Naomi's bleak and difficult future, she opted to return to her mother's home and, as Naomi says, her Moabite gods. She goes back. 
And I think it is the same today for many who truly do like Jesus. They like him. They resonate with his message. They feel a strong attraction to Jesus personally. They love what he's all about. And even though they may walk for a time with Jesus, as Jesus begins to confront them with the cost of what it will mean to truly follow him, what they must give up, what they must endure, they fall short of salvation because they cannot find it in their hearts to forsake other things for him. I worked for almost a decade at a Christian camping ministry in Southern California. And it was great in the summertime. We would have these groups come up and uh, groups of hundreds of kids. And it was fun because I had worked there as a kid on their summer staff. And then I came back as an adult and some of the same leaders were still running the same camps that I remembered from when I was a kid. One of those leaders was a guy, I still to this day don't know his full name. Everyone just called him Uncle Billy. Uncle Billy was the director of a camp called LTLYTC. These are the modern-day standard bearers for those ladies in the Wild West who went around protesting liquor. Loyal Temperance Legion Youth Temperance Council, LTLYTC. They've kind of morphed over the years into this Christian ministry that works in the inner city, mostly of Los Angeles, uh, encouraging kids to put their faith in Jesus, but also to reject drugs and alcohol. They're not really advocating for the illegalization of drinking anymore, like they did in the Wild West days, but they are encouraging kids to say no to that stuff. And Uncle Billy would every year bring hundreds of kids up from inner city Los Angeles. And when I was a kid on summer staff, he would, and I'm not making this up, uh, you can ask him if you can track him down. <laughs> he would patrol the grounds with a two by four over his shoulder, because he he's like an enforcer. <laughs> In fact, one time after work, I was sitting in the center of camp and I was drinking my favorite soda at the time, a cactus cooler, which if you've never had a cactus cooler, you can't buy them in northern Maine. It's like drinking liquefied pixie sticks. It's just <laughs> pure hummingbird food. And I just loved it. So I'm sitting there drinking my cactus cooler and I hear this voice from behind me, boy, what do you think you're drinking? Cactus cooler, Uncle Billy? <laughs> he thought I was one of the campers, not on staff. He said, what are the strongest animals on earth? I said, I don't know, maybe an elephant or a whale? He said, what do they drink? Water? <laughs> and then he took my cactus cooler and poured it out on the ground. <laughs> I was like, well, thanks, Uncle Billy. <laughs> that was Uncle Billy. Now, I came back as an adult. Uncle Billy is still leading LTLYTC. He no longer carries the two-by-four. But one night after putting my kids to bed, I decided to go out, and it was the last night of LTLYTC. I went up to the bowl in the center of camp where they are having an end-of-camp fireside meeting. And say what you will about my friend Uncle Billy, the man's theology was spot on. Uh, he had certainty and understanding concerning the gospel. He knew how to speak about what was the right basis for us to have hope and trust in Jesus for salvation. It's the end of the week. The bowl is packed with these kids, and he is laying out the gospel, the plan of salvation. He gets to the end of his gospel presentation, and he says, 
if that's you, if you feel like your God is calling you to put your trust in Jesus for salvation, I want you to come down front. We're going to pray with you. You can become a Christian today. And then that thick, heavy conviction of the Holy Spirit settled over the bowl. Have you ever felt that? Just that uncomfortable almost, just the weight of it. This is a momentous, you can feel the wrestling in people's hearts. It's palpable. Some people get up, they go down there, there's crying, counselors take them to the back, they pray. Uncle Billy motions for the worship people to come up, they sing a song. They were about to pray to close the session out and Uncle Billy laid his hand on them and said, no, 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 stop. And Uncle Billy said, you know, while we were singing, I felt strongly impressed upon me by the Lord that there's at least one more person here who has not, but who wants to. And then it got, if you thought it was awkward at first, (laughs) it was really awkward now. And I'm standing in the back, I'm watching this. And I'm kind of looking around like, what's gonna happen? And then I heard, this is the only time I ever heard it, a string of profanity from the back row of the bowl This kid was sitting there, not a kid, he looked like a full-grown man, and he looked like he was dressed to meet girls, not the Almighty. (laughs) And he said, ah, bleepity, bleep, 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 bleep. He gets up and says, I I gotta do it. (laughs) And he goes down to the bottom of the bowl. And then I was treated to one of the most unique spectacles I've ever seen. I've I've never seen this. Never seen this done. Uncle Billy grabbed that kid by the shoulders and said, are you sure you want to do this? And he said, yeah, yeah, that's why I'm here. He said, I know some things about you. And he, right in front of everybody, he talked about how he was living with his girlfriend. And he said in front of everybody some other things this kid was involved in. And said, you know you can't give your life to Jesus. You can't embrace Jesus without letting go of some of that stuff. I don't know if those were his exact words, but that's essentially what he said. And on that basis, that guy bent the knee and asked Jesus into his heart as Lord and Savior, and it was so right. It was right. He didn't say, come try it out. You'll like it. He said, no, when you're going to step into this Jesus thing, you need to say, where you go, I'll go. Jesus, your people are going to be my people. And I'm going to die a Christian. (laughs) And Uncle Billy stopped him. He said, you can't be messing around with this stuff. You've got to mean it. To his credit, one of the most impressive evangelism moments I've ever seen belongs to Uncle Billy. Following Jesus will mean walking away from other things. Embracing Jesus will mean of necessity letting some things go. And so there are people who love Jesus. They do. And yet they leave him. Why? Well, because they do not love him enough to deny themselves, but they love other things better. They're orpas. I'll say it again. Jesus said, if anyone does not give up all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Cannot. Strong words from the Lord. 
In other words, I believe that Jesus is saying something like, if there is something or someone that you love more than me that would cause you to turn back and go back to them, if I required of you, you cannot follow me. Like Orpah, is there something or someone that you would not be willing to walk away from if I required it of you? One commentator I read this week said that we shouldn't be too hard on Orpah or read too much into her decision to return home or to over-spiritualize it because it was probably just a commonsensical decision, a matter of life and death. However, Naomi said she went back to her gods as well. That's the counsel of Scripture. She walked away from what was most needed. And I don't mean to be hard on the Orpas of the world, but I do want the Orpas to know what they have done. I do. And I want to give encouragement to those Ruths who have clung passionately to Jesus, even in the face of great mind-boggling difficulties, that it's worth it. Orpah did not make the right call. She walks out of the pages of Scripture, out of the pages of history, out of God's blessing when she returns back to Moab. And that's a stark reality that's worth pointing out. I don't judge Orpah. Any of us might have made the same decision, but I do feel sad for her, for what she walked away from. But look at the radical answer of Ruth. Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye, but Ruth, we're told in verse 14, she clings to her and then gives one of these most beautiful and true-hearted speeches to be found in all the pages of Scripture. I'm going to read it again. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. One of the great mysteries surrounding this decision that Ruth makes is exactly why does Ruth do this? (laughs) What is her motive? Why? She leaves her own people in the network of family relationships for a life of great uncertainty and poverty as a foreigner in a land where her kind is looked down upon. We talked about that last week, the origins of the Moabites. She attaches herself to a bitter woman without prospects. But I think most mysterious is this statement that your God will be my God because how has Naomi presented that God to Ruth? (laughs) I'm cursed. He's judging me. He's dealt bitterly with me. And yet Ruth says, your God's going to be my God. I'm going to embrace that God that you say has touched you in this bitter way. That's an amazing thing. Ruth's resolves harden into this beautiful and determined speech, and we are left wondering why. Why? What was her motive? And I would say you might as well try to ponder out the reason why Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, would become a missionary, give his life to the Gentile people. Why? (laughs) You might as well wonder why Jim Elliot would go live among the Aka Indians. Or after he was murdered, you might wonder why his wife would go back and live among them, the murderers of her husband. Why? 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 Ruth, why? 
Well, the answer is, and all I can say, is that when God gets a hold of a person, they don't behave naturally, they behave supernaturally. They go to surprising places. They feel an affectionate concern for surprising, unworthy people. And they find themselves doing surprising things, like moving from beautiful Florida to Aroostook County, Maine. where there's a frost warning on 4th of July. No, just kidding. There's not a frost warning. I exaggerated that part. When we put a God whose thoughts are not our thoughts and whose ways are not our ways behind the steering wheel of our lives and we say, you do the driving, we might just find ourselves like Ruth, living in ways that just flat out do not make sense to other people who are looking on. Don't try and make sense of what Ruth does here. This is not a natural way of behaving. This is not evidence of natural reason. This is a matter of supernatural calling and obedience, I believe. If we're to rightly understand Ruth in this moment. This decision that Ruth is making... It doesn't make sense according to what folks who walk by sight would recommend. It only makes sense if you're walking by faith and somebody else is doing the driving. It shows that God is directing her life. Orpah returned to her gods, but Ruth said to Naomi, I'm with your God now. Your God, the one who you say has dealt bitterly with me, he will be my God too. Because mysteriously, he is my God, and I cannot deny it. This is the pattern of a true convert to the one true God. When we come to God, we must be willing to tell him, like Ruth said to Naomi, God, wherever you go, I'm going to. Wherever you're active and working, that is where you will find me rolling up my sleeves. You, where you go, I'm going. I'm going to abide in Christ. I'm going to make him my dwelling place. Your people, the church, they're my people. And even though they may be poor and despised and looked down upon, I'll throw in my lot with theirs. You and you alone will be my God and I will have no other gods before you. And I'm not dabbling in this thing. I'm all in. This is what Ruth says. And I think this is what every true convert to the gospel says in their heart to Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we can't explain Ruth not in a reasonable way, not in a mapping out pros and cons kind of way. Her willing embrace of this life, this woman, this uncertainty, all the difficulties, her decision to go live among a people who were deeply prejudiced against her. Father, there is no way of explaining that except obedience to you. God, for whatever reason, 
you plucked this woman out from among all the women of the earth. You got a hold of her. You filled her, Lord, with a desire to do this thing. God, you put these beautiful words in her mouth. You gave her a heart to go with them. God, you gave her a place in your story of redemptive history that we're going to unpack in the weeks ahead. And Father, all we can say is, wow. That's the story that you are writing in our lives right now. You have chosen us. You have given us a heart to believe. Father, please save us from Orpah's fate. God, maybe there is someone listening to these words right now who loves you, who feels drawn to you, who thinks you're great. But God, at war in their hearts are other things that threaten to rival you for mastery over that space. There are other things that pull at them and that threaten, God, to take your place. And Father, I pray for them, God, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, cause them to see the danger of that, whatever it is, and to, like Ruth, say in a firm, resolute way, these words, that they're with you, they're all in, they're walking away from Moab in a permanent way. Father, I thank you so much for the free gift of salvation. I love to study your story. Father, I pray you'd continue this conversation with us even as we go out from here today. In Jesus' name, amen.